0: There are plenty of people who just see lots of information, they see real information, they see disinformation, and they're trying to figure out what to believe. Now you are fighting more amorphic opponents who have access to technology that is in everyone's
1: hands. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sanispert of the Mad Scientist team, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci, or subscribe to the blog, the Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. Today, we'll be revisiting a previously published episode from last year featuring Keith Law. Keith is a senior baseball writer for The Athletic and was previously at ESPN, as well as the special assistant to the general manager of the Toronto Blue Jays. Last year, Keith published the book, The Inside Game, Bad Calls, Strange Moves, and What Baseball Behavior Teaches Us About Ourselves, where he discusses various cognitive biases and illusions that affect our decision-making, all through the analogy of our national pastime. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. Keith, thanks for joining us today. Yep, sure thing. Happy to be here. So, Keith, you're not our typical guest that we usually have on this podcast. It's very defense-centric. Can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and kind of how you came to the attention of the Mad Scientist program? Sure.
0: Uh, So, my name's Keith Law. I'm a sports writer, baseball writer specifically, for The Athletic. I've been there since January for the 13 years before that. I was also a senior baseball writer for ESPN. Prior to that, I worked briefly in the front office for the Toronto Blue Jays. I have also written a couple of books. Smart Baseball came out in 2017. Then I had a second book, The Inside Game, which came out in April of this year. And I think it was particularly because of that book where I use baseball examples to explain concepts from cognitive psychology and or behavioral economics that brought me to your attention. These are topics I've tried to touch on a lot over the years in my writing at work, but it's also more of a personal interest of mine where I've read a lot of books and uh, even research papers in this area and had the idea to try to merge the personal interest with the day job, which is obviously just covering baseball.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. So as mad Scientist explored weaponized information and disinformation this summer, we brought Keith in to speak to us about the human side of that and what goes on in people's brains as they make these decisions. We use the term first mover advantage frequently when we talk about disinformation campaigns. You know, That is, whatever piece of information gets out there first kind of becomes truth and it's harder to undo that damage because people latch on to an initial piece of information. Can you talk to us a little bit about your research into anchoring bias and what you found out in that realm?
0: Right. So anchoring bias is, you know, all of these concepts I discussed in the inside game have been well established by people in cognitive psychology or in behavioral economics and sometimes in classical economics going back decades or sometimes even hundreds of years. And in the case of anchoring bias, uh, what it is in just in general terms is that our brains to try all of these biases exist right because our brains are just dealing with huge quantities of information every day more than w- more stimuli than we even typically are aware that we're dealing with and so our brain has lots of shortcuts and heuristics to keep us from just being overwhelmed sometimes those lead us astray in the case of anchoring bias if you simply hear a number or a fact about something whether or not it's true or relevant to the question at hand, your brain will kind of latch onto that and it will skew your subsequent thinking. There's a very well-known psychology experiment where uh, they'll ask students to write down the last two digits of their social security numbers and then ask them to estimate something, some number of jelly beans in a jar or something that's going to be between one and a hundred. And it turns out that the students, what the students wrote for the last two digits of their social security numbers actually skew their guesses on the number of whatever the items are, the jelly beans in the jar. That's absurd, right? The two things have absolutely nothing to do with each other, but that is our brains will anchor onto the last number, the last seemingly relevant thing we heard, even though we know on a more rational level that these things aren't actually relevant. And I bring this up in the inside game when talking about uh, home plate umpires and who generally do a pretty good job, probably as good a job as humans are going to be able to do it, calling balls and strikes. But they're very subject to a couple of biases back there, and one of them is anchoring bias. In this case, remembering, even on a subconscious level, what the last pitch was or what the last two pitches were or simply what the count is. Now, whether the count is 2-0 and o or 0-2, that doesn't affect the location of the next thrown pitch, right? The pitch is where it is in space. However we see hard evidence that umpires do end up considering the count or simply consider what the last pitch was. And it affects their judgment on borderline pitches, the next pitch particularly, as long as it's on the borderline. And sometimes when it's not even on the borderline, but particularly those borderline calls. And this is one of the reasons in the book that I argue for replacing human umpires calling balls and strikes with an automated system to call balls and strikes. Because automated systems may come with some of their own problems, but they don't have cognitive biases.
1: Yeah, I think that's particularly important to what we do because in the intelligence world, we are consumers of information. We have to be cognizant of just because the first few things we read agree with what we're saying doesn't mean they're necessarily representative of everything that we should be reading. Um, So baseball is a unique institution, and it shares some similarities with the Army. Uh, Baseball has an antitrust exemption. There really is no competitive free market Army that's going to push the U.S. Army out right now. Um, They're both large organizations. They're both steeped in history and tradition. And oftentimes they're resistant or slow to accept radical and innovative change. So as someone who was on the forefront of the analytics revolution in baseball, do you have any advice you can give us in the Army on how to affect change in that kind of an environment? Sure. You know, my
0: position with the Blue Jays was an awkward one and, and probably made more awkward by myself too, because I was really unfamiliar with what was in front of me with the difficulty of coming in and trying to create change in a fairly hidebound organization and industry that had been doing things a set way for 50 60 70 years and what this is how we've always done it and so and I came in I was hired by a boss who thought differently himself um, who did not agree with a lot of these traditional ways of doing things and he brought me in to try to, blow things up a bit, to not just provide a different voice and a different way of thinking, but to come in and say, um, and certainly support him in some more structural changes that he was thinking about. That is not necessarily the way to win hearts and minds, so to speak, in an organization. Now, if you're coming in, you think all these people are going to be reassigned or, or let go, uh, you know, leaving aside the sort of moral questions there. It doesn't matter as much right that, but that's not a typical situation usually if you're coming to an organization or moving up through an organization and you're thinking i need to help push larger scale changes whether it's operational changes or obviously everyone now is talking about changes to how we work with uh hire and promote people from underrepresented minority groups too you are probably still going to be fighting against the tide Um, I know it's particularly true in a lot of sports organizations that are remain dominated by white men. Um, Even though there's certainly a pool of people from outside that demographic group who are qualified, they don't get the same opportunities. And if you walk into a major league baseball front office now and say, we need to improve our DEI. Let's sit down. Let's make a plan. Let's hire other people to help do that. You'll probably get a lot of lip service, but not actually be creating change. And, my particular advice from my own experience with toronto where i did not, would not say i had great success in terms of creating change is that it becomes a very great, it should be a real grassroots effort that you want to try to convince people on a much more individual level because often you're trying to convince them that something or some things that they've always believed to be true are not true the same way there's quite a bit of research out there on how to convince vaccine hesitant parents to, uh, to vaccinate, you're pro- the true va- anti-vaxxers you're probably not going to change their minds because they're just they're lost. But there are plenty of people who just see lots of information. They see real information. They see disinformation. and They're trying to figure out what to believe. It becomes a, a, a lot of handholding, a very individual approach. But there's quite a bit of evidence that that can work. Now they're telling doctors, physicians, pediatricians, here's how you deal with those parents. If you're coming into an organization, though, I don't think it's all that different. It's about spending time with individual people. You may want to start with some of the decision makers. But you don't necessarily have to. You could start with some of the people who are simply at your own level or even below that, because you might find it easier to approach them or to get time with them or to build a rapport with them. Either way, though, you're going to have to go a bit person by person. If you do a really good job, though, some of those people will help become evangelists for you too, and so that you tell five people about this and you maybe convert four of them and one or two of them are so on board with what you're preaching that they will then go out and try to help create that change, help spread that change, get more people on board. This is how you build, I think, how you would build a lasting coalition inside your organization that would then help you make some of the larger structural changes that you're hoping to make regardless of what types of changes they actually are.
1: Yeah. And I, th- I think that makes a lot of sense. And the individual approach is similar to, I think what I've read your approach is when you donate to charities, you look for the smaller ones that can affect change with the money that you give them as opposed to the larger ones yes. that maybe less of the money will go there. There's direct influence. Yes.
0: Well, cause that's, I mean, I'm not going critis- to criticize anyone's approach to giving to charity. If you're giving, that's great. My personal belief is that one, I want my money to get to the people who really need it rather than to administrators, not that they don't deserve to be paid, but I want more of my money to get to the actual targets. And two, that if you want to create lasting change in a community society, even another country, the best thing you can do is actually getting money or, or some other very basic need, food or shelter or water to the people who actually need it. That's the kind of change that is, that is long lasting, as opposed to simply showing it, you know, The reader hears stories of, well, this uh, nonprofit showed up, they built a road, they built a schoolhouse, they provided this equipment, and then they left. And suddenly, three months later, there's no gasoline to power the tractor, and it never gets used again. You're trying to avoid that kind of situation. And by injecting the money at sort of the lowest stratum, you're more likely to create lasting change.
1: So I want to talk about the inside game now. There were a lot of things in that book that surprised me when I read it. And, and one of them was the example you gave earlier about um, the experiment where they asked the, the, the folks to put their social security number down and that influenced them. What surprised you the most as you were doing research for it?
0: I'm not sure anything really, nothing really surprised me in a way that changed my thinking. Because I went in knowing a lot of these concepts. Because it's been years since I first read, you know, Thinking Fast and Slow and some of Richard Thaler's books and, and just continued, you know, you know, I read a book and then I'll often write about it or tell friends about it. And eventually someone will say, Oh, you liked that book, you should read this one too. And so I was pretty well informed, at least at a superficial level, on a lot of these topics from cognitive psychology, I did do one bit of new research myself looking at or looking for, I guess, anchoring bias in the draft, because I have long believed on an anecdotal basis that teams really treat prospects differently based on where they were drafted. And if you are once a first round or always a first round, right, you will simply get more opportunities forever. If you're a first, if you were a first round pick. Now, the truth is, Once you're in pro ball, it kind of doesn't matter anymore. And of course, the more time you're in pro ball, the less it should matter. If it ever mattered in the first place, you're not going to play better because you were a first rounder, but the fact where you were drafted becomes a sort of proxy to discuss your talent level, your anticipated talent level. The more that a player plays, the more data we have, scouting data and statistical data, that tell us what sort of player you are and your draft status becomes less and less relevant. Also it just recedes further into the past and it's no longer describing the player that you are right now. However, my experience from working in a front office and then just watching the industry for the last 14 years always told me that teams just give extra chances to those guys, those first rounders because of, because of anchoring. And I think a little bit because of the sunk cost fallacy, we spent all this money on the guy. If it's your own draft, your own first-round draft pick, like we spend all this money on the guy. We don't want to admit we screwed up. Let's make sure we at least get him to the majors. You don't want him to be the one guy with the blank stat line when you pull up the drafts page on baseball reference. But I think it even carries forward to other clubs. That player gets traded or released or, or however he ends up rule fived somewhere else. Other teams would say, well, he was a first rounder. We remember him as a first rounder. We remember liking him in that draft. We didn't get him then, so let's go get him now. What I particularly tried to look at was were these players more likely to get opportunities in the majors because they were first rounders? And the data, it was weak, actually. I, I don't think you could. I don't think they were significant enough to support that particular conclusion. Now, are these players still maybe overvalued in trade? Possibly. I didn't think, couldn't think of a good way to operationalize that and test it. But at least the, mo- the easiest thing I thought of to look at to say first-round picks are more likely to get opportunities in the major leagues. And I tried to cut it a couple of different ways, including like looking at the last few picks of a first round and the first few picks of the second round there. It just didn't pan out. The, day, the effect was there, but not that significant, probably not statistically significant enough to prove that it exists. And that did surprise me. I I thought that I'd find a stronger effect because like I said, I I have always thought teams would say, if nothing else, uh, let's get this guy a cup of coffee in the big leagues just so it doesn't look like we screwed up the pick.
2: Keith, so your book, uh, I got to read uh, Smart Baseball recently was really fascinating. Uh, and you, you quoted a lot of the sources that you used for that. For researching the inside game, what do you think what book or resource really was the most important in your research and why?
0: I mentioned Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. He's a Nobel Prize winner, uh, the Nobel for Economics. Uh, and that book, I think that's kind of the seminal work in terms of popular anything aimed at the popular audience, a non-academic audience on cognitive psychology and behavioral economics. It's the place you would you should start. He describes most of these effects, most of these biases or cognitive illusions. He does so with a bit more of a didactic academic tone. The writing is a little bit dense. And I don't say that as a criticism, but it does limit who the potential audience is for that. Also, his examples are from different industries that maybe, he has, actually mentions baseball and mentions a few sports examples, but not very many. And I thought years after reading that as much as i liked it i found i couldn't recommend it to a lot of people because the prose is somewhat difficult and the examples are not all that accessible so i wanted to write something that was approaching a very similar subject but that i was doing it in a way that translated it so that a much broader audience could end up reading it Uh, i did actually at the end of the book also at the end of the inside game i even had a list of hey if you liked this book here's six other things you might read that are kind of along the same lines, or, or at least take similar evidence-based approaches to some of these questions. It's figuring, I'm happy to just be the entry point. And then if you go read another book on the subject, you think it's better than my book was, but you got there because of me, then I did my job. That to me would would absolutely count as a successful, uh, successful experience that I've given to the reader.
2: So... You know, football and war get compared a lot. I'm a big football fan, Uh, but baseball and war, not so much. Um, But I think there's kind of some interesting parallels between baseball and the information environment that we talked about uh, during our weaponized information campaign and and when you were on um, the conference with us. Do you really see any examples of similarity there between baseball and the information environment?
0: Well, I talk a little bit in, I think more in the second book, more in the inside game about similarities I see between uh, these persistent inaccurate beliefs within baseball and people's tenacity in refusing to let them go. And you know, I mentioned anti-vaxxers. I even made a reference in the inside game to the fact that someday another pandemic was going to come and our anti-science views were kind of going to hurt us. Um, our, our tolerance of anti-science and even the way that we amplify some of those voices, that's absolutely turned out to be true. We already have people, um, with the Sinclair, one of the Sinclair Broadcasting Network programs, they debated, air quotes, whether Anthony Fauci had created the coronavirus. We should not live in an environment where that's an active discussion in a major platform. Like you can put, leave that stuff to 4chan. Uh, we shouldn't be discussing that out in public. And the problem that we run into you know, the, the stakes are lower in baseball, but we're still fighting disinformation. We're still fighting a lot of inaccurate beliefs on clutch hitters and the hot hand and line of protection. We're actually particularly fighting a lot of inaccurate beliefs on differences that don't actually exist between white players and black players, or between players born and raised in the United States, and players born and raised in Latin America, particularly in the Dominican Republic. Those beliefs are persistent, and they are very harmful. And Yet, you know, we can't sit around. I used to joke that, hey, the people who believe all that stuff, whether they're in the media or inside front offices, eventually they're going to die off, and the next generation just doesn't believe them. And the generation after mine believes them even less. We can't really just wait for that to happen, whether we're talking about structural racism within a sport or we're talking about, it, about anti-science views within a society. We need to uh, recognize that the people who believe these things these ridiculous things, and they are incredibly foolish things. Uh, they are out there, they are preaching their views, and often they do it more aggressively because they understand that they're endangered and that they're under attack. They're in the minority, they're often trying to make themselves sound louder than they actually are. And I do think there is an obligation on those of us with platforms to go out and do and say more, whether it is simply a matter of you know, me saying I support Black Lives Matter uh, or amplifying women or people of color in my industry or, uh, you know, something more critical like more scientists, doctors, physicians, but even scientists from other fields coming out and saying, no, vaccines are safe and effective and we need higher compliance or we're going to be at risk from further outbreaks, not just of COVID-19, but of other diseases. We don't, I think in general, when things like that are so widely believed, most people know vaccines are safe. Most people vaccinate their kids. But if you just try to, put all the views online and put them on two sides of a scale, you'd think anti-vaxxers were a lot more common than they actually are. Because people who believe the the rational stuff, we don't talk about it enough. And you mentioned, Matt, I think you mentioned earlier that first mover advantage too. I think anti-vaxxers really benefit from that because they're out there constantly. And if you're a new parent and you go online, you start trying to, search for vaccine safety, what do you get? You get a bunch of junk site links, the NVIC, or that Health Rangers site, whatever, I can't even remember what it is, I shouldn't even say what it is, or Mercola. These people are cranks, they're generally selling stuff, they're pushing anti-science, completely inaccurate statements, fact-free statements or inaccurate views, but they're out there and they're out there more than we are. They're out there first. They get to people first. And then it is so much more work for us to pull those people back to rationality.
2: That's an important point. I think especially something we've been trying to understand in the solution space and how we get ahead of that. Um, so that we're not constantly fighting from behind. You talked in um, Smart Baseball about sabermetrics really changing the game of baseball. And that was partially in, in how players were viewed and, and how players were um, uh, scouted and, and hired or rather signed. Um, but also in changing front offices and that data science um, becomes such a major part of every front office now. What do you think, though, in terms of other disruptive and emerging technologies like augmented reality, virtual reality, machine learning, how do you think that changes the sport?
0: We're not seeing that much of that yet inside of baseball. Maybe that's coming. Um, We have seen a lot of changes just in the last, I would say, two, three years, so since I wrote Smart Baseball, since that was first published, where now we have technology needed to measure things like exit velocity and spin rate has gotten substantially cheaper. So many colleges have some of these systems in place. Uh, High schools or independent coaches Players themselves can buy these small devices now that can measure some of these things. Now, they may not have exactly the precision or they may not, uh, maybe they don't, I don't know if they maybe just don't get readings as frequently. Maybe there are more inaccurate readings that have to be thrown out. But they're more than good enough, certainly. And it turned out, if you had access to, say, a Rapsodo machine this spring, you were a draft player, that actually gave you a bit of an advantage in the draft because you could actually, you could then create that data and send it to all 30 teams. You could generate that yourself because nobody could go out and scout players after about March 13th or so. So that certainly changed the game. There are also more tools available all the time now that try to measure biomechanical markers, particularly as we're looking for ways to prevent injuries. I mean, if you were going to say, What's, what one thing could I do? Could I invent something that would do the most good for the industry of baseball? You would reduce the rate of Tommy John surgeries. And pitching injuries in general, but Tommy John surgeries, the the torn elbow ligaments are the most frequent ones right now. We've sort of reduced the shoulder injuries, but we've kind of replaced them a little bit with elbow injuries. That's a lot of lost productivity. And if you could find a way to reduce Tommy John surgeries by 5%, you'd probably be saving hundreds of millions of dollars in value. For baseball as a whole, and so people are constantly trying to invent machines that at least will measure the data. You know, elbow sleeves, for example, that are trying to measure different types of stress on the elbow and the ligaments in particular. I don't know. Well, that data, a lot of that data is proprietary, and what teams are doing with it is certainly proprietary. I don't know if anyone's really cracked that one, but I know that these devices barely existed three years ago, and I'm certainly seeing we're hearing about a lot more of them now, which indicates to me there's there's still a lot of innovation a lot of progress happening on the technology side. And I think that'll probably be the next major change that we get from technology will be something to reduce injuries. Maybe it's not Tommy Johns. Maybe it's reducing oblique strains for hitters, but anything we can do to reduce injuries and keep the best players playing will be a huge savings in terms of productivity for the sport.
1: I think there's a lot of parallels to defense in what you just said. Uh, because we preach a lot that um, one of the things we need to look out for is the democratization of technology. You know, it's not just nation states who have access to these things now. And it looks like in baseball, it's not just the teams that have access to this technology, the players are now getting access to it and, and, and increasing their value. Um, and at the same time, what your focus on the second part of your answer was uh, the health of the players. Um, and in the Army, what that means to us is the health of the soldiers and how, we, how can we make them healthier? What can we do to enhance the biology? because that all comes back to soldier readiness. So that's what that's the end of the game. So industry has driven defense in recent years. And so if we can look to an industry like baseball to see what's happening there, maybe there's some parallels uh, for us in defense.
2: I think the same way you're looking at uh, reducing Tommy John surgery, we want to look at how we can measure metrics on soldiers so that paratroopers don't have the amount of spinal injuries and other osteo you know issues that they get from making jumps all the time. I think that's extremely interesting.
0: I remember—I was just going to say—I remember reading. uh, As I'm 47 now, so when I was in the 80s or so, uh, it seemed like there were a lot of kind of armed. You know, separatist movements around the world. And um, yeah, and you know, some of them were successful. Eritrea, for example, eventually got independence. Many of them were not successful. But I think how much harder it must have been for them to get information, propaganda probably, information out to try to gain support for their movements. Now you read about or I have read about uh, often false stories spreading on WhatsApp in India leading to sectarian violence. Uh, It is so much, I cannot imagine the job that faces the military of any major power, because now you are fighting more amorphic opponents who have access to technology that is in everyone's hands. So many more people have you, they may not have electricity to their homes, they may not necessarily have running water, but they might have a cell phone or something similar, or, it's, or access to a cell phone at least. And so it's easier, I would imagine it's much easier than for separatist movements or, or, or outright terror movements to get that information out to everybody. And that kind of democratization, there is a parallel in sports. Again, the stakes are substantially lower there. But we do, we have information in a lot more people's hands much uh, much more easily now. It's much easier for people to obtain that information and for players to gain some agency with their own information too, and to maybe decide who gets that information, or to decide what to use, use uh, to decide what to do with it, and how to use it, maybe to further their own development, as opposed to simply accepting what the team employing them wants to do.
2: In a little bit of a different vein, you know, Keith, you've you've written a ton in terms of having two books published, um, been publishing baseball columns since 2006, you've reviewed board games and had the blog concerning book, music, and movie reviews. I have some beef with some of your movie reviews. But a large chunk of our audience is analysts working in defense. And they write it. They write in a different form, um, but they do a lot of writing. And so what advice would you have for them on how to become a better writer? And what advice would you have for those next generation of writers that are coming into the workforce?
0: My The first piece of advice I give anybody on writing is that if you want to be a better writer, you need to be a better reader. Uh, and that means reading outside of the genre in which you write. I don't read, actually read very few baseball books. I only read a handful of other baseball writers because, I mean, one, because I just don't want to bias my own writing too. I want my information to always be organic stuff that I'm generating myself, but also to improve myself as a writer. And I, I feel like that's a process that never actually stops. I want to constantly challenge myself by reading, uh, often reading new voices, reading different genres, reading different subjects, reading different formats. And so that is a never-ending process for me. And I happen to really enjoy reading, but I also think a lot of people would enjoy reading more if they... Try different books, different authors, different genres. Uh, if you think you don't like reading, it's possible. It's not certain, but it's possible you just haven't found your niche yet. Uh, my father worked, uh, he's retired now. He was an electrical engineer and he worked, in, uh, worked for multiple companies that were um, defense contractors uh, in the aerospace side. And he would often say how uh, infrequent it was that people he worked with on the engineering side could write or could communicate. And so I would also argue that if that's your role, if you come from a STEM background and you're working somewhere in defense, this is also just a huge personal competitive advantage for you to work on your writing, to refine your voice. Um, that may mean just reading books about writing too. I mean, there's nothing wrong with picking up, maybe, maybe you didn't see the elements of style in high school or maybe you haven't seen it since high school. There are plenty of books out there that can help you just work on your phrasing syntax, grammar, avoiding some like very fundamental mistakes. Um, my partner and I were talking about this earlier in terms of how many people just overuse the passive voice, for example. You never want to use the passive voice. The passive voice is overused. You should never, do, you, if there's any way to avoid the use of the passive voice, you should do so because the passive voice to me is inherently misleading. Well, why aren't you telling me who did mistakes were made by whom? Who made the mistakes? That's a very, very simple fix for anyone's writing. A little practice, and you can simply work the passive voice out of you so that it starts to sound wrong when you write it or when you read it. Uh, and you will find good writers very seldom use the passive voice. So this comes back to my original point, too. The more that you read good writers, good writing, the more that certain things will sound good to you, certain things will sound bad to you, and you will make changes to your own writing. And the passive voice is just one of those that I think most style you know, style writers or advice would say, avoid the use of the passive voice. It's a good thing to work out of your uh, your own personal style and syntax because I think it's misleading. And again, I think it really gives you a personal competitive advantage in the workplace if you're seen as somebody who has the chops on the STEM side, but can also communicate clearly.
1: Yeah, that is, passive voice is the first thing they worked out of me when I got my job with the army. Uh, Well, I should say worked out of me, I hope it's out of me. So we're gonna transition a little bit now. These are what we call our rapid fire questions. They're the same for every guest, there's three of them. Um, I'm very interested in in the first uh, the answer to the first question here: What's what technology or trend keeps you up at night?
0: The fact that teams now, Major League Baseball teams, have access to a lot more data than I do. Um, they get all the Statcast data. I have access to some of it, but they're also getting a lot of proprietary data that I just don't get to see. And when I started this job, I could pretty much keep up with what teams were doing. There will now, forever, probably be a gap between what teams know and what I know, and I don't like that. I my I always felt like my role would be to be a translator between what teams knew and what fans wanted to know. And now that's uh, just inherently more difficult.
1: So the next question um, you live your life, a lot of it out in the open on Twitter and and with your various, your blogs and such. Um, So we know a lot about you in terms of your interests. We did the board games, we know coffee, things like that. What's something about you that most people might not know?
0: Oh, that's a good question. Since So much of there's so much is out there. You talked about having anxiety disorder. I've talked quite a bit publicly about that. Um, I don't know if there's anything that I haven't talked about that I would be willing to share here. There's certainly things I won't talk about here, but I, I've, I've tried to, and this hasn't always worked out great. I've had problems with people, I've had problems with fans um, not understanding boundaries. I had, I called the police earlier this year because somebody decided to violate the boundary between me and, and the audience, so to speak, in a you know, particularly upsetting way. Um, and I do struggle with that. I've wanted to be open and, and for people to see the whole me and to because people said they would just like my writing, not just my writing about baseball, but my writing in general. And I thought a way to cultivate the relationship with the audience was say, here's lots of other things I'm interested in. Here are some personal details I'm willing to share. It hasn't always worked out in my favor. And it does make me question, do I need to move the line? Do I need to be less disclosing? Um, you know, the flip side is talking about some of the stuff, particularly anxiety, has Uh, been a very rewarding experience. And many readers have come back to me to thank me for writing about that stuff to say that they sought out treatment or medication for their own mental health issues because I spoke about them. So I think ultimately I'll probably still err a little bit on the side of,
1: of disclosing too much, but I have definitely had to reconsider that a lot, especially in the last 12 months. So the last question we have for you, and I was disheartened to hear that you had never seen Jaws. What is your favorite movie?
0: Oh, I've seen it now, so... I finished, I finished Jaws yesterday. Yes, I have weird gaps in what I haven't seen because I've seen lots of movies, but there are strange absences, particularly because my parents were not big movie people. I think they're still not big movie people. And so I saw some movies as a kid, but there are definitely a lot that people my age have seen that I didn't see as a kid and just never got around to as an adult. Um, I would say, I think my favorite movie is probably Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I think that's an absolutely flawless movie. I thought the two lead performances were great and I'm not a Jim Carrey fan, particularly not since he's a, a, absolute off the deep end anti-vaxxer. Um, but I thought he was fantastic in that movie. I think Kate Winslet was fantastic. I think that script is amazing. It's the best thing Charlie Kaufman has ever done. It's shot beautifully and it touches on so many universal and timeless themes. Um, it's been my go-to answer for a while now. I suppose at some point I should reevaluate. I should re-watch it and see if I still feel that way. I almost never re-watch movies um, unless it's for my daughter to see something for the first time. And then I'm usually there like doing something else, tapping away, writing a blog post, for example. That's probably my answer. I will give say if, if it's not that, it might be double indemnity. I just have such a soft spot for the, like, the classic noir novels and movies of that era. And there's something about a black and white detective story
1: or mystery with an anti-hero that just,
0: yeah, right into my veins. I just love that stuff.
1: Yeah. That was Roger Ebert's uh, favorite genre as well. So that's good company to have. So Keith, where can people find your work and where can people follow you online? So
0: my baseball writing is all at the athletic. Uh, You have to subscribe to read. There's lots of good. uh, We have some pretty good promotions going on right now for the return of the baseball season. You can find my board game reviews at Paste Magazine. You can find my personal writing, my, actual, my own blog at meadowparty.com slash blog. It's an old Bloom County reference if you're old enough to remember that. You can follow me on Twitter at Keith Law, on Facebook at Keith Law Writer. And I also occasionally send out an email newsletter, which you can sign up for at tinyletter.com slash Keith Law.
1: Uh, So, Keith, I want to thank you for coming on the show today, for speaking to us at our Weaponized Information Conference, and for giving us an outside perspective, because that's what we try to do at Mad Scientist, is bring in the folks that the Army doesn't get to talk to, so we can get different ideas and we're not in our own echo chamber. So thanks for coming on today. No, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guest, Keith Law, senior baseball writer for The Athletic. You can connect with Mad Scientist through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci, and don't forget to subscribe to our blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating or review on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you accessed it. This feedback helps us to improve future episodes of The Convergence and allows us to reach a bigger and broader audience.